This episode of Better in the Dark is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. Sign up for a free 14-day trial, including a free download of your first book just for trying out their service. Some of the available titles include Urban Gothic by Brian Keane, The Sarah Jane Adventures, Wraith World by Kavon Scott and Mark Wright, and Blood, A Southern Fantasy by Michael Moorcock. So after you finish listening to BITD, why don't you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark and get your free audiobook today. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. I want to apologize to Michael Sims for not mentioning him in the last theme song. Because all he does is run Earth2.net that brings you better in the dark every two weeks. So, salute to Mr. Sims and an apology. And also, I want to apologize for the last theme song because it was cool. But it wasn't as good as I felt I could have done. And I think I did way better this time. But y'all be the judge. I'm going to go in one song. See you on the other side. 95. Welcome to the big show. Brought to you from the BK. Home of Jay-Z and Biggie. What's really left to say to the boroughs? It's time for better in the dark. Yeah. Tom is a lady killer, Derek is a pimp Bust a head, serving notice to all wimps Tell your baby mamas, it's time for better in the dark yeah, they still start trekking, but they got someone aboard Eric Fromm on a mission to save anyone who's bored But the movie's been covered when they roll with Mr. Sims Time for TV now, start the Enterprise again Back to Spock, back to Kirk, don't wear that red shirt Roddenberry was a genius, but it really didn't work Till 1987 when they introduced Picard With a Klingon in the crew, Starfleet go hard Deep Space Nine, they were on a space station Cisco had a plan for any confrontation Voyager had Janeway, but really I just must say I watched for Jerry Ryan, she could fade me any day Bacula was back at you, got his own enterprise Only lasted three seasons cause the viewers don't lie Only going places where no one has before E.T. and D.Engage, Engine 94 and Do the Big Show, brought to you from the BK Home of Jay-Z and Biggie, what's really left to say To the boroughs, it's time for better in the dark Yeah Tom is a lady killer, Derek is a pimp Bust a head, serving notice to all whims Tell your baby mamas, it's time for better in the dark May I say that I have not thoroughly enjoyed serving with humans. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transpire out, freak! And until we get back in touch with you... Go watch that movie! Right, Davin? Go watch that movie! Podcaster's log starting. <laughs> I can't do that. What are you guys doing that? <laughs> you guys know it. I'm sure that you guys know there were originally lyrics. Yeah, there were for the Star Trek. Theme. There were words to that theme song. Much, of, but like most things, when they actually did it, it right. didn't sound. No one else had words. What bonanza of all things. <laughs> 
Here we go, we're riding along this radar. No, actually, if you go on YouTube and look up Bonanza theme song, Lauren Green and Michael Landon, and they're, they're singing it. They're singing the Bonanza theme song. No lie. I'd love to hear Shatner sing the original series theme song, man. He doesn't anything like Rocket Man. Oh my God, Rocket Man. Well, he's too busy talking about shit his dad said. Say what you want about William Shatner. The man is a genius at reinventing himself. I'm amazed that show is still on, by the way. What? I saw about a five-minute slice of the first episode of Shit My Dad Said. No, I've got it on my DVR. I I tried to endure it because I think the world needs more Nicole Sullivan. Oh, yeah. That's our girl. Exactly. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. See, I didn't know she was on that show. Yeah, she's like the daughter of Shatner, I think. And I'm like, no, no, those are two things. One could not come from the other. Sorry. Which is our usual long-winded, better-in-the-dark <laughs> way of introducing this long-winded episode in which Tom, myself, and our esteemed co-host, Eric Fromm. Hey, five seconds into the show and it's already a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, right. It would be better in the dark if it wasn't. But what we are going to cover today is Star Trek, the television series. series. That's right. This is the final payoff, David Ellis, for your contest. Yep. (laughs) Hope you enjoy it. Earlier today... Mm-hmm. We covered the movies, all 11 movies, with Michael Sims, and that was a lot of fun. And I trust that this one is going to be just as much fun as we're going to be discussing Star Trek The Original Series, and then Star Trek The Next Generation, and then Deep Space Nine, Did and you know, Voyager, by the way, I was, and I was Enterprise. Doing, I was doing a little bit of research. Even though it was considered not in continuity until last year, the animated series is now officially considered canon. Wow. There is his cancer, my friend. There have always been elements, especially from episode they did where Spock had to go back in time and he met his younger self. That was incorporated into the original series. Yesteryear. It was the second episode in. Right. And it was written by DC Fontana. Well, a lot of the original writers contributed quite a bit to the original series. You can almost look at the animated series as years four and five of their five-year mission. Mm -hmm. They really wanted to get critical on it. So it is true there were giant triples. In the Star Trek universe. (laughs) I don't know about all that. As a matter of fact, it was in the animated series that Kirk's middle name of Tiberius was established. He was always just James T. Kirk until the animated series. Actually, I think if you go back to the pilot, I think his middle initial was R or something like that. Yeah, that's a famous gaffe in the second pilot they did, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Where the Maybe guy, it's another alternate universe. It could be. Where the guy, he conjures up a tombstone, and on the tombstone it says James R. Kirk. Yeah. Eric is joining us here today, and we're going to be talking about Star Trek. You and know, Eric, the, we should mention, runs the DC Anthology site, and also is the man who manages our message boards at betterinthedark.proboards.com. And does an absolutely phenomenal job of it, and once again, Eric, thank you for giving us we that valuable space. Anything I could have done to contribute, I'm cool with. I I'm just glad this be- to be on here now, as I said, it's just so Kelly doesn't have something to hold over my head anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we don't have to have it. Kellen going, suck it. Yeah, right? Yeah. Hey, Kellen, suck it. <laughs> buddy. We've said this before on the podcast. We are continually amazed, humbled, and surprised at the generosity of some of our fans who step forward and without us asking, go, here, 
Here's a website. Here's a theme song. Yeah, that's when here's you, a message board. That's truly when you know how you're connecting yeah. with people and you're touching them. When people say, "Hey, you know, I'd like to be a part of this, even in some small way." I should mention, since this is a Star Trek episode, that Eric also is good enough to host a website that is devoted to the, the Star Trek fan fiction written by myself and a good friend Father of mine, Neil and Jason Cleaver. Uh, yeah, it's a father and. Mallory, and it's got all original characters set in the Star Trek universe. Jason and I met, I don't know how many years ago when we were doing a Star Trek play-by email game. Uh, the PBEM. Yeah. PBMs were my first foray into what might be a fan fiction. Yeah. So what happened was that his character, Eve Mallory, and my character, Dennis Fotheran, kind of clicked. We would ignore what everybody else was doing, and our characters would be having their own little adventures, and finally we said we ought to do something with these, and we started writing stories. I showed a couple of them to Eric, and Eric said, these should be shared with other people, so he was good enough to create a website, so for those of you out there, if you're at all interested in Star Trek fan fiction that I've written myself, some stories are written by myself, some of them with Jason Cleaver. By all means, go ahead and check them out. And Eric and I have often talked about, because he's got in mind to do some Star right. Trek fan fiction, and we've talked about co-writing that as well. If you want to look for Father Mallory, you can just look at trek.v-hyphen.com. Okay. Before we jump right into the television series goodness, we want to remind everybody that Better in the Dark is brought to you by audible.com, where it invites you to get a free audio download at www.audiblepodcast.com slash betterinthedark. Over 75,000 times to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. Sign up for a free 14-day trial, including a free download of your first book just for trying out their service. And as is the want, I have picked out some recommendations okay. for this episode to tie in with the Star Trek love. You could get right now on audible.com if you click through on www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark, you can get Star Trek Spock versus Q. Ooh. Written and narrated by Leonard Nimoy. I've actually listened to that one because it was originally done with him and John DeLancey. Mm-hmm. That was a two-man thing that right. they would travel around the country doing, and it's a debate between Q and Spock as to uh-huh. the worth of mankind. It's interesting to listen to. Uh, that's one I can personally recommend, okay. folks. Also, you can get Star Trek The Next Generation, The Genesis Wave, books 1, 2, and 3 by John Vornholt, narrated by Tim Russ. And finally, Star Trek... Sarek, written by A.C. Crispin and narrated by Mark Leonard. We bring that up because in the last Star Trek episode, we talked quite a bit about Mark Leonard. Yes, we did. And there's 82 different Star Trek books, so if you're a Trekker or a Trekkie or whatever you want to call yourself. Probably about 82 of those I've actually read. Oh, there you go. So I can personally guarantee that if you get the Genesis Wave books, you'll enjoy yourself. And there's plenty of other stuff if you happen to be interested. When we did the Doctor Who, we found a whole slew of Doctor Who stuff. All right. Take a look around. Go onto the website, take a look around, sign up. It'll be fun. Once again, it's www.audiblepodcast.com slash better in the dark. Audible.com And one of these days I'm going to get a phone call from Audible.com saying, stop it, stop it. Yeah, right? Just just stop it. <laughs> now, as a way of getting into this, in the last episode we, we did with Michael, Michael, we talked about how we got into Star Trek. So if anybody wants to know how, they can go back and listen to that, which they should have listened to already. So, Eric, why don't you tell us how you got into Star Trek? I told Tom, when the first episode of Next Generation came out back in 87 or whatever, I was 8. So my experience with Star Trek so old. was kind of random and limited just to the reruns up until that point of the original series, which is why when Next Generation started, I was kind of anxious to jump on board with it. Obviously, I'd missed the 
excitement of being a part of the original series. It was just something cool to actually be a part of right from the start to my first Star Trek. These guys make me feel so old. I, I was just <laughs> now, he said he was only eight years old. Me, I was working for the Board of Education back mm -hmm. when Star Trek The Next Generation. I think I was still an editor over at Roth Publishing. Hey, and Spock is going to appear in Chicago. Really? I was an old married man by the time yeah. the next generation was on. I think I've been married about five, six years by the time it came on. Let's start with the original series. Okay, so when did you finally start watching the original series, and what was your initial impressions of it? The original series, I really can't put a real date on what I saw. I don't necessarily know if I really realized what I was watching, other than just the fact that it was science fiction. With Star Trek, the biggest thing that really drew me to it was just the imagination behind it. You had to create your entire own world, the characters. So it was really pretty much that that drew me into it first. And then from there, you get to learn about the characters and you get attached to it. Well, when we were doing the previous episode, Tom made a very good observation of one that I think is valid. Part of why Star Trek became such an overwhelming phenomenon is because for the longest time, it was the only thing to watch yeah. on TV. It was the only science fiction on there to watch. If you weren't into like the Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, right. it was right. Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek pretty much did open the door, I would think, for shows like Stargate and... Well, wow, my examples just dropped off pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, after Stargate, nothing came out. And I realize it's kind of hard for our younger viewers to realize this as they've grown up with a sci-fi channel and they've grown up with 500 channels mm -hmm. where you right. can turn on and you can watch science fiction TV shows and movies anytime you want. But in the time period we're talking about, back when the original series started up, it was a wasteland. There wasn't that much science fiction to watch on TV. For the longest time, it was just Star Trek, the original series. Yeah, as you pointed out, there was a block here in New York back in the 70s. You had Star Trek, mm -hmm. then you had The Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. and then you had... The Honeymooners. The Honeymooners. And then WPIX went off the air, which is something else that this generation doesn't comprehend. Mm -hmm. That stations used to go off the air yeah. after a certain time. You couldn't stay up all night long watching TV. You had to go to bed because there was nothing on to watch. So. After, of course, you got the national anthem. Yeah, and then you got the commercial with the crying in there. Or the commercial about Yul Brynner going, no, don't smoke. Don't smoke, yeah. You and me are probably the only ones that get that. Everybody else is scratching their <laughs> like, heads. What? what are they talking about? Which is, in the way, the first early rumblings of this really transgressive campaign they have, the anti-smoking campaign. Oh, God. Here, look, it's actual lung surgery. You don't want that, do you? They better hope that I never hit the lotto, because yeah. you know what I'm going to do? I swear to God, I'm going to open up a restaurant, and you know what it's going to be? What? I'm going to ban non-smokers. <laughs> oh, I can't come in? Oh, well, you can come in. You're okay. my boy, but I'm talking about all the all rest right. of them. Noodle heads that, oh, smoking this, fine. Since you want to have a restaurant where only non-smokers right. can go, I want to have one where only smokers go. can okay. go, since you want to be fair about it. And then let's see what happens. But, getting back to start, where... Incidentally, we don't see anybody smoking in the future, so we can guess that they don't. I'm sure they have space cigarettes. <laughs> so you primarily was into the next generation then, right, Eric? Yeah, I knew the original series enough, but it really wasn't anything that I kind of dug into just because I was too young to really get a lot of what that show was about. I pretty much just saw five with five and six, just spaceships flying through space and Kirk punching people in the face. <laughs> so when Next Generation came out, it was pretty much my chance to just jump on board from the start. Favorite characters in the next generation? Worf. Oh, well, of course. Everybody's favorite Tane yeah. Klingon. Worf, Dana, Riker. Got it. It's almost easier for me to say what's not my more favorite character. But you want to know for me what was the unusual thing about that character, Worf? His character, who was an orphan, but he had more family than anybody else on the ship. <laughs> 
<laughs> sort of like the observation we made in the last Star Trek episode that for logical race, the Vulcans are really, really mystical, aren't they? Yeah. Worf had foster parents. He had a son. Yeah. He had two brothers. Ex-wife. And ex-girlfriend. Yeah, ex-girlfriend, ex-wife. I mean, he had family up the wazoo. And he was always running around, oh, I, I'm an orphan. I, no, you're My not. My parents were killed. You have no water. Yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> But Worf was interesting in the sense he was a character who was a Klingon raised by humans. Mm -hmm. And so, as a result, it was always he was overcompensating Mm -hmm. and trying to be a super Klingon. Right. Because he had never been raised by a Klingon. Yeah, okay, we get it. Klingons have honor. But Worf didn't just have honor. He had honor. (laughs) (laughs) Given that the Klingon view of humans is just galactic pansies, to be raised by that, I'm sure there's a lot of overcompensating for that. There was this... Thing that happened and all the Klingons was wiped out except for Worf. He was found mm-hmm. as a baby. It was never explained to myself well just simply take him to the nearest Klingon embassy and say well, here, here's a Klingon baby. Take him back to your home world. But the Roshankos, they took him back to Earth and they raised him as their own. And I guess nobody ever said well how come you just don't send him back to his people? I'm just surprised they didn't get slapped with kidnapping charges. <laughs> they just took him. Yeah, exactly. It's not like there weren't any other Klingons around. And Kenimer, the planet that was attacked was the same planet from Star Trek 6. Right. So it's not like it was out of the way. Well, this is what I'm saying. It's not like they didn't know where to take the baby back to or they didn't know what people he came from. Okay, let's say, for example, the Klingons didn't want to come to Earth. We'll meet you 10 miles outside of the neutral zone and you can pick up the baby there. I just wanted to know is, where was his brother? How come his brother wasn't worthy enough to come along on a family trip with everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you spilled Romulan bloodworms on the carpet again. You have to stay home. You have to stay home, yeah. Or something yeah, like that. Like Browning. Uh, the popularity of Worf can't be denied because he was the only one from the next generation to make the jump to another right. series. He went to the Deep Space Nine. they bring him on to kind of bolster the ratings there? Yes, they did. Well, yeah, they did. But just on the fact that it just made the show interesting, too, to be able to continue a character. It was almost like that Frasier going from Cheers to Frasier. Yeah, it brought a whole new dynamic to the characters. Because at this point, Deep Space Nine was good, but it hadn't gotten to where it would really be when it got to the Dominion War, and then it really started getting to be like a really kick-ass series. That's when it kicked into high gear. But for those first couple of years, it kind of floundered around and didn't really know what it was going to be, and it was experimenting with different types of things, like they brought in Q right. in one episode, and to this date, Benjamin Sisko, which is why I love this guy, he's the only captain to ever knock the shit out of Q, tell him to get off his Starfleet, and Q never came back. Right. <laughs> Sisko is the only Starfleet captain to scare this guy. Well, John Luke ever pushed me? Well, I'm not John Luke, bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Q was really shocked. Does Sisko have to slap the They had apparently come up through the ranks the hard way, yeah. doing auditions together and appearing on Broadway shows and teaching school. And yeah, yeah, so they were good friends in real life. I could be wrong here, and if I am, Erica, correct me. I think he appeared on Voyager more than he did on The Next Generation. Right. Oh, I think he appeared more in Voyager one season than he did in The Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> one of the few Next Generation episodes I do remember is there's an episode where Q is causing trouble and he gets a visit from R, who is played by Corbin Burnson. No, they're all oh, called. Oh, okay. I, I was under the impression that he had another letter. My question was, was that mean there's always just 26 of them running around? No. Well, they did have other Qs, and that's what they all called themselves, Q. Mm-hmm. If they were having a discussion, they would call each other Q. Right, okay. They never differentiate. Yeah, he had his abilities taken away because Q was like 
the universe's oh. main troublemaker. He just ran around just carrying on cranky for no reason. He was like no that reason. cosmic Liberace who was in that one episode. Yeah. People draw a lot of parallels between the cosmic Liberace. <laughs> well, it's what like, is he? Not the cosmic Liberace. It's almost being like the first real Q we see. And like a baby Q like that. The Squire of Trelane. Agathos. Yeah, Agathos, Trelane. Yeah. That was the name of the character. Yeah, and I remember... That after Q was introduced, somebody raised their hand and said, well, was this character from the original mm -hmm. series, was he a Q? And I believe that Roddenberry, somebody said, well, if you want to say he was a Q, yeah, well, that's what he was. Mm -hmm. He, he was a Q. There's a fantastic book, I think by Peter David, Q Squared, which actually brings Q and Trelade all back together. They brought Q and Trelade back on the Enterprise. Oh, okay. And they played around with three different alternate realities, one of which was where Jack Crusher was the captain of the Enterprise. And then they explained at the end of the book that they called him Trelane because of the three timelines that were played around with. Ah, interesting. I Only Star Trek book I read twice. They took away his powers briefly, right. and he was actually going to kill himself. It was a fantastic scene where a guy that stabs him in the head with a fork. Yeah. <laughs> Just because she doesn't believe him. Because apparently Q monkeyed around with her people and right. she took exception to it. And she was telling Picard to shove him out of airlock. <laughs> to screw him. He's a Q. And Picard said, well, I can't do that. Because he's all politically correct and shit. So he can't. Yeah. You know, Kirk would just be like, okay. Okay, yeah. Shut, yeah here, move out the way. <laughs> I'll, I'll do, do it. it. <laughs> yeah. Kick Q firmly in the ass and just... <laughs> yeah, I always get the impression that if Q had ever come to the Enterprise, it would have been the end of him. Because Kirk would have found a way to <laughs> not just get rid of him, but destroy him. Because that's what Kirk was all about. <laughs> I've got this image of this Warner Brothers cartoon with Kirk going, here, hold this, and it's like a TNT stick. Yeah. He just puts his fingers in his ears and squeezes his <laughs> <a> nice job. <laughs> And I cannot let any discussion of the next generation go by without expressing my utter and complete dislike of the most useless doctor in the history of Star Trek, Dr. <laughs> Beverly Crusher. A character so without personality that I actively confused her with the slut. I mean, sorry, counselor. Deanna Troy. Yeah. Oh, God, the queen of the obvious. Yeah. <laughs> they turn her into a quasi mind reader. She can read emotions, but I mean, come on, it's obvious. Oh, the person's crying. Oh, let me guess, you're sad. Oh, really? <laughs> right, come on. I think you're hungry. You think the fact that I just got something from the commissary? Is <laughs> In the last episode, we briefly touched on that, and I was saying that the one person everybody went to for advice and who did a better job of being a counselor was Guinan. Oh yeah. That's who Picard went to. Yeah. Nobody ever went to Deanna Troy. She would come in the, to the ready room. I think you need to talk. And he said, get the hell out, bitch. And then he'd, <laughs> and then he'd go talk to Guinan. See, now, if Picard talked like that, that would have... But you know who was one of the people that was up for the role? And I oh. wish to God he played Yafikado. Oh, God. See, we'd have got <laughs> scenes like that if Yafikado had played... the track. Yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine... Fuck that shit. I'm going home. Oh, I mean, <laughs> you think about the various people who we could have gotten as the various captains. You and I have talked about this, how much we really would love to see that footage with Genevieve Bourgeois playing Janeway. It's up on YouTube where they do have, it's not a little clip either. It's an extended scene. Really? With her with the other actors. Yeah, look for it. I uh, understand that she just felt she wasn't right for the role. Yeah, actually, it was her that said, I'm not feeling this. This isn't yeah. working out. I don't think I'm right because for this. Genevieve and, Bourgeois. Oh, and it's a little wonder, Janeway. Really wasn't that great of a character. Wrong way, Janeway. <laughs> <laughs> 
the most inconsistent captain in the history of Star. Okay, okay, wait a minute. Let me backtrack first, and then we can go right. back to Janeway. The reason why I say Beverly Crusher was so useless is that the ship would have a situation where yeah. half the people on the ship are dying, and Picard is begging her, please find a cure. Her answer for every goddamn thing was, I need more time, John Luke. So, so. It was a disease you know that Bones could have found yeah. a cure for a bam like that. Even the guy from yeah. Deep Space Nine, he was a better. So apparently, Dr. Crusher went to the Scotty School for officers. Yeah, but mm-hmm. she never performed a miracle. No, yeah, exactly, because Scotty performed miracles. Yes. The, on season two of Star Trek, when they replaced Crusher with Pulaski, Pulaski did everything that was impossible. She wiped a person's mind correctly, because when Crusher was supposed to do it for the Pen Pals episode, that didn't work. Didn't she replace Worf's spine in that episode? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. So Worf had his back broken. And she replaced yeah. it. She, Dr. Pulaski said, no problem. Give me a new spine out that case over there. And so she stuck it in there. Now She could have made a new spine for work out of a broomstick. It would work. Here's a very interesting story behind why Gates McFadden was replaced. Right. As Dr. Crusher for that one season. A lot of people don't have the story right, quite frankly. It's time for another episode of Better in the Dark Schools, y'all. Okay. She was up for this movie role. Mm-hmm. And Gates McFadden got the movie role. Okay. It was in The Hunt for Red October. Right. Okay. With Alec Baldwin. She was going to be playing Jack Ryan's wife. Unfortunately, this conflicted with the shooting schedule for that second season. She went to Gene Roddenberry and she went to Paramount and mm-hmm. she asked, I want to do the show, but this is an opportunity I can't pass up. What right. can you do for me? Gene Roddenberry, since he was very good friends with Diana Muldar, right. who had been in the original series in a couple of episodes, yeah. he asked her, could she come on? This is why. And people tell me I'm full of shit, but if you look at that entire second season, Diana Muldar is never listed with the regular cast. She's always as a special right. guest star. That's because she was only supposed to be there for that one season. Her Right. Who needs their daughter Gates, by the way? They offered her the ability to be in their main credits, but she's like, no, I don't think so. Right, because she she was a temp. She knew the circumstances. But here's the kicker. Gates McFadden did the movie, right? Right. Ends up, all of her scenes end up on the cutting room floor, oh, except for like two minutes. Oh, jeez. She's in yeah, the movie. You said Hunt for Red October, and I've seen that movie about a billion times. I'm like, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice and all that worked out for her. There's only one little brief scene of hers when Ali Baldwin goes to the house and gets his clothes before they take him to the submarine that you see her, and that's it. But her role was much more substantial, but they cut her out. She was just lucky enough, by the grace of God, that she had told her beforehand, can I come back and do right. that? Otherwise, Diana Muldaw would have been there permanently. The way you're talking, it seems like you like that character a whole lot more. Oh, yeah. Oh, Dr. Pulaski, yeah. She was the 24th century Bones. <laughs> <laughs> she hated Data. That Bones, quote-unquote, hated Spock. They were setting up that whole relationship to begin with. I don't think so, because Spock and Bones were friends. Oh, of course they were. She regarded Data as nothing more than a very clever toaster. Right. She says, it doesn't impress me. She told Flat so Dr. Pulaski was John Byrne. Yeah. She said, it doesn't impress me. You can do this, you can do that, do this. To me, you're nothing more than an overgrown wind-up toy. Yeah, but that's almost, not the, the, the same exact way, but that's almost what O'Brien thought of Bashir. Over the course of the rest of the show, they became the best of friends. I could have totally seen Pulaski and Dana go the same room. Which was the brilliant thing about that relationship between O'Brien and Bashir, because we actually got to see it grow over the seven-year run of that show. We got to see two men who actively did not like each other at the beginning, and by the end of that run, they had grown into the best of friends who would die for each other. And we got to actually see that friendship develop. 
develop and grow over time. It was a remarkable story arc in terms of characterization, what characterization can really be done over right. the course of that show. That's my thing on Dr. Crusher. Again, the most useless doctor in Starfleet. All I would, she did was heal a bone, and all she needed to do was just wave that magic thing over the person's arm. That's all she ever did. The only episode that she ever really showed any moxie was the one where the people kept disappearing from the Enterprise, and she was right. the only one on there, finally. It was, uh, all, bubble uh, again, a bubble universe. Uh-huh. And it was collapsing in on her. Her brilliant son, Wesley, has sent her into this bubble universe. <laughs> That's where she should have stayed for the rest of the show. Yeah, and people were vanishing. There's a great scene where she comes on the bridge of the Enterprise, and it's just the captain. Right. She asks the computer, well, where's the rest of the crew? She said, well, the only compliment of the crew is you and the captain. And she says to the captain, don't you find it a little bit crazy that we're on this ship the size of an aircraft carrier, and we're the only yeah. two on here? Patrick Stewart is replying quite logically and naturally, well... Doctor, the computer runs the ship. And then she said, well, then why did it even have us here? Right. <laughs> oh, man. But, but then and if it was Kirk, he'd be like, good idea, and kick her out of the airlock. You was guy there. They had that also, that what brilliant scene where she measured the universe, and it was all about as big as the ship. Yeah. If she had any acting moment in the entire series and in the movies, that but, was it. Yeah. Before we move on, what do you think about John Luke Picard as captain? I liked him. Besides the fact that he's French and he surrendered the Enterprise every chance he got. <laughs> so he was actually Commander Surrender Monkey. Yeah, he was. My problem with Picard is that he almost got the sense that they wanted to make him the complete opposite of Kirk and the fact that for at least the first few seasons, all he did was just posture. But as the seasons went along, they gave him a lot more to do following Rest of Both Worlds. He really did start to develop a quite a bit of a backbone, but I think they really tried pushing that diplomacy bit a little bit too hard with him. Yeah, they want him to be the anti-Kirk. And I really don't have a problem with that because he was supposed to be more of an elder statesman and diplomat right. rather than the swashbuckling man of action that Kirk was. Riker was supposed to be the swashbuckling man of action. You think maybe the reason that the characters changed so much the story of the seven years is because at the beginning Roddenberry was definitely in the driver's seat but he got less and less control during the 80s yeah Roddenberry's whole thing was that first of all one of his mandates that there'd be no conflict among the characters everybody wanted to be like in the Wrath of Khan that Ronda Khan we just went big happy Starfleet that's what Roddenberry wanted and as any good writer all three of us are writers that we know Mm -hmm. that you cannot have character development without conflict you gotta have conflict somewhere and if you don't have it then well, what's the point? Everybody's not going to get along all the time. And that was the problem. That's why the characters, at least in the first couple of seasons, they came across to me as somewhat cookie-cutter and bland. Right. Well, it really wasn't until in season two, I think it was, The Measure of a Man, where they debated Data's sentience, that we really didn't see the characters kind of come into their own until that point. Or maybe the episode before that, where Riker went at an exchange program from the Enterprise to a Klingon's for to pray. He was in prison, and the first thing he had to do to oppress everybody was beat the shit out of a Klingon. Right. Yeah, that's what Worf told him to do. And again, going back to what we were talking about in the movie thing, Worf and Riker, you always got the feeling that them two really had a friendship. Because yeah. Worf was the only one that was looking out for him when he went to a Klingon ship. He said, well, here, take this. And he said, well, what's that? He said, just in case you, we got to beam your ass off of the <laughs> You just hit this button. You know the ship. First thing you do, pick out the toughest guy on the bridge and kick yeah. his ass. <laughs> and Riker said, what? He said, trust me, trust me on this. And it worked. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, well, that's what you do with a Klingon. Any first season of any show is like a shakedown cruise because mm-hmm. you got to iron out the bugs. And with this show especially, actually when Star Trek The Next Generation came on, nobody knew how they were going to react to this being an all-new enterprise with right. an all-new crew. Right. I don't even think Star Trek Six was out yet. Nah. 
So they weren't even really done with the original series come the start of this, despite the fact that it started 75 some odd years after the end of the original series. Right. And I think even the entire first season of the show, they were struggling with their identity to set themselves apart from the original series. Despite Worf's entrance in the first episode, when they were building this series, Roddenberry almost had a mandate that everything you saw in the original series, you weren't going to see here. No Klingons, no Romulids, no Balkans. Right. They were going to totally ignore everything that they did then and do what would have allowed it to have been a brand new universe for Star Trek. So I think there was a lot of struggle for identity in that. Well, that's why we had the Ferengi in the first season. They were going to be the quote-unquote new bad guy. Yeah, they, were, they would have been the Klingons in right. the first season. Yeah, that's why we had them show up in a couple of episodes in the first season. But they didn't work out exactly that way. And it wasn't until they revamped them. Right. And the greedy, avaricious Ferengi, which I like a lot better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they almost became comedy characters. Yeah, they did. Before they turned into that role, they were almost parodies of what, for at least the show's sake was, what a Klingon would have been. But it wasn't until you got to Deep Space Nine and you got a character like Quark. Even though he thought of himself as being a typical Ferengi, he wasn't. There was a lot of traits he had that weren't shared by a lot of his race. Quark could be actually quite heroic on occasion when he had to be. He even was capable of thinking of others and putting the needs of others ahead of himself, even though there was no profit in it for him. And now he'd never really admit it. Him and Odo, they had one of the best frenemy relationships I've ever seen in any TV show. These were two guys who actively hated each other, but couldn't get along without each other. Right. They needed each other. It was like a benign Holmes and Moriarty, Mm -hmm. if you will. Anything else you want to add about the next generation before we move along, Eric? Since you asked me this question, I'll ask you, since we really haven't touched on this series yet. Your first exposure to the original series. Oh, mine? I have very, very dim memories of actually watching Star Trek when it was on NBC during its original run. Now, I asked my father about this one time, and he said, oh yeah, you used to bug us all the time, because then it was on at 10 o'clock at night, and I was real young then. We're talking about the 60s, and of course I wasn't allowed to stay up that late, but they did let me stay up to see Star Trek. But when I really got into it was when here in New York, like Tom was saying earlier, every night before I went to bed, they would have... The Honeymooners, they would have Twilight Zone, and they would have Star Trek. They had Monday through Friday, and I would always watch Star Trek. They re-ran that thing for years here in New York. And that's how I really got into Star Trek. So I was a big fan. I come by my being a fan, honestly. (laughs) Because uh, we didn't have DVDs, we didn't have VHS. If you wanted to watch Star Trek, you had to stay up and watch it. My memories are of it being in the 6 o'clock slot. Yeah, see, uh, that's funny, because both of us were raised in New- That, I don't remember that. I do remember when they moved it to 11 o'clock. Okay. But my earliest memories was that it was on at 6 o'clock. Mm. Probably, at the time, that was one of PIX's biggest draws. And, of course, 6 o'clock, it was competing against the evening news. Right. See, I was never home at 6 yeah. o'clock back then, so that's probably why I don't remember. I was probably hanging out. Yeah, but that's how I got into Star Trek. Myself. My impression of the original series, and I've seen every episode at this point, I like the series a lot. Even if the episode was the goofiest, unbelievable episode out of this world, you could still always take something out of the performances of B-Boy or DeForest Kelly or, or Kirk. They did have episodes in there besides the one that they say is the best episode of Star Trek ever, which I don't kind of agree with. The uh, one where Kirk has to go back in time to save Joan Collins. He's sitting on the edge of forever. Right. The one Hall and Ellison is still suing Paramount for <laughs> He'll never stop about that. He's been suing them for 50 years for that damn episode. Eventually he will. He gave that 
interview recently where he said, I'm like an old dog and I can sense when I'm going to die. Yeah. <laughs> kind of hard to imagine Harlan Ellison ever dying, though. Actually, my favorite one of the original series is the one where they go to that planet where the aliens, uh, they had the book, The Chicago Gangs of the 1920s. Piece of the action. Piece of the action. That yeah. Yeah. Now, see, that's my favorite episode. Frank introduces them to the game of Fizzbin. Fizzbin, yeah. yes. One of the reasons I think I grew apart from Star Trek fandom. As we mentioned, it's like I was really into it as a kid, got really intensely into it in junior high school. But around the age of 13, 14, I started slowly moving away from it. Part of the reason was I got really annoyed by the way it seemed. It was the weird simile for a culture that already exists in history of the week. Mm-hmm. Here's the Nazi planet. Here's the Roman planet. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, Christ. There were probably at least six or a dozen Earths out there yeah. that weren't Earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those two that top mentioned, and I think there was the one where all the grown-ups died. Yeah. Oh, I hate that one. That's one with Kim Darby. I hate that episode. Yeah. There was the one where it was kind of like a pre-independence thing where these people were worshipping the flag. Yeah. Was- I think that's the one though the white gorilla with the horn in his head. Oh, the Bugatu. The Bugatu, which was actually a prop from the old Outer Limits. I don't know where this information comes from, Mm -hmm. but I do know that I read this one because Paramount was one of these places that didn't believe in throwing anything away, so they just grabbed this alien suit from the episode of the Outer Limits and painted it white. Now, I'm going to sound incredibly sexist here, but I'm sorry. You know, the only thing I remember about that particular episode that you're mentioning? What? They had this woman on there with these amazing knockers, and all she was wearing (laughs) was this fur bikini. It was holding it to this day, I still watch that episode hoping that thing is going to bust open. So, so she was getting a Raquel Welch on. Yeah, and she was wearing these leather pants. Right. Uh, you know how many times when I'm watching that TV show and I'm hoping that if I move just a little bit to the left, I'll score some more sight Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there a movie arm? Move your arm. Yeah, right. Please, move your arm. What amazes me is that there are people that have made their careers out of being that person in Star Trek. Oh, sure. Like sure. Angelique Pettyjohn. Uh-huh. I was the green alien in the Star Trek. The green alien, yeah. No, no, she went to, what was it? She was in, what was it? Game Masters of Triskelion. Who was the Orion Slave Girl? That was Bad Girl. That was Yvonne Craig. Uh, Yvonne yeah. Decau, yeah, Yvonne Craig, yeah. Did a very nice yeah. dance, I must say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, she was a dancer, as we've mentioned several yeah. times. But part of it was because I got really annoyed by the fact that they didn't really do anything alien on this show about alien worlds. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that's one of my biggest problems with Star Trek. The aliens are... But to give them their due, they did explain that in one episode of The Next Generation called The Chase, where they found these DNA strands all over the galaxy. And the Enterprise is chasing all over it. And it's like a galactic scavenger hunt. And the Romulans are chasing them. And the Vulcans. And they're putting all these clues together. And once they put all these DNA strands together is this message that was left for them by this race that millions of years ago seeded the galaxy with the same type of that was their way of explaining why all the alien races in Star Trek were humanoid. Were humanoid. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, it could all make yeah. sense. Yeah. The other problem I had and the other reason why I moved away from was I felt that increasingly as I grew older I found Gene Roddenberry's view of the world very, very, very naive. But that's because you're a sourpuss. <laughs> you're not an optimist, Tom. Huh? I keep telling you, you have to look for the good in no, mankind. Being an optimist 
And they're is expecting that every time the sun rises, puppies are born spontaneously. And that's what Gene Roddenberry apparently thought. Well, yes. And you know me. I always accuse yeah. people of having a we are the world mentality. Right. Well, Star Trek it was the one that originally had the we are the world right. mentality. Oh, right. If I give it a hurrah, a big part of the series, that including Chekhov in the series, is a Russian who was at the end of the Cold War or wherever it was right up there next to the good old farm boy Kirk. Yeah and I know it's hard for people who are much younger than you and I Tom to realize but see we knew what it was like back then. Right. People nowadays when they hear about the racial strife and unrest mm-hmm. back in the 60s and 70s well we knew it because we lived it. Exactly. It was a big thing for Roddenberry to have all these different nationalities sitting together on that screen at the Hell, same time I mean, a black woman, a Russian, an Asian it. yeah. The fight he had over having Kirk and Uhura kiss. Oh, yeah. The very first interracial kiss on television mm-hmm. was on Star Trek. Even in the southern markets, they still had to cut that out. I've heard Nichelle Nichols a few times say the story where they got a letter from some good old boy in the south. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, we don't believe in that type of thing down here, but if you got a beautiful woman like you in your arms, you <laughs> got to do it. Yeah, let's not deny. She was a hottie back then. I think that anybody, and even Nichelle Nichols, she was going to quit the show. At a couple of times. At one time, she was talked out by none other than Martin Luther King right. Jr. Spoke right. to her personally and said, please don't do this. We need you up there right. every week. She did, and we're eternally grateful. But it's funny that Todd mentions the going back to like a lack of aliens type of thing is during the first season, Roddenberry had a huge fight on his hands to try to keep Spock on the ship. Yeah, nobody wanted Spock. Um, you wouldn't have had much of an alien presence out there at all if it wasn't for him. Yep, and I hope my mom doesn't get mad at me for revealing this, but... Of all the characters, she had a crush on Spock. Well, most women did. That was yeah. a thing. It was amazing. Spock turned out to be the sex symbol. When right. they thought it was going to be William Shatner, but yeah. it turned out to be the pointy-eared guy. Yeah. That's when all women were crushing over. They said, oh, those ears are sexy. But amazingly, there it was. And the rest is history. There's ever, I think, an exam. We referenced this in the last Star Trek episode. A big, blaring indication about where Gene Roddenberry head was at. It was that novelization he did for the first movie. Oh, yeah. We talked about Star Trek, which Tom insists on calling the motionless picture. Eric. No, no, that was Michael. I called it the boring motion picture. <laughs> and we were talking about the novelization that Gene Roddenberry did. Have you ever read that novelization? I might have maybe part of it, but I know it's sitting on my bookshelf. Yeah. You didn't miss anything. I just remember it was about a two or three page sequence where Gene Roddenberry explains the bathroom habits. Of the 23rd century. Yeah, as if we needed to know that. Yeah, it's like... I do, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Do they poop and then a teleporter just... Poop <laughs> 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 oh, no, but you, you know... At warp 3 and then all of a sudden you got a smear shit all over your view screen. <laughs> Oh, no, but you know what really scares me, Eric? I remember in Voyager, I don't remember what episode it was, but they were talking about, because you know they're stranded in this other quadrant. So they're talking at one point about the resources of the ship. Milana Torres mentions that everything is recycled on the ship and processed through the replicator to make other stuff. So wait a minute, so you're telling me this sponge cake I'm eating today was somebody's shit yesterday? Oh, yeah, Matter is matter. Yeah, okay. Well, I you still had a problem with Torres myself, though. Oh, I had a big problem oh, okay. with her. I was. It was me and Quark the Hole, and we were... I had a big problem with her because she only had two attitudes. Pissed off and even more pissed off. Oh, yes. I couldn't stand most of the characters on Voyager. Well, that was the Black Vulcan and the Hispanic Klingon. Just what we needed. Let me explain something. And people really have a hard time with me when I say... And they say, oh, but you're black. 
And I said, so what does that mean? I don't go with black Vulcans. So you're telling me that if there's black Vulcans, then there's Asian Vulcans? That was downtown Vulcan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to see a Latino Klingon's lowrider. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So there's Latino. from a chef if it's just nothing but Klingon lowriders? Yeah. No, yes. So you're telling me that there's Latino Vulcans? And people say, how come there can't be black Vulcans? Because they're supposed to be a completely separate species. Right. What would Latino Vulcan merengue sound like? I like to see Klingon lowriders. I would get like spikes and stuff hanging off of them. And oh, and swords on the door. Yeah. No. Yeah. The corpse of the one person they just killed hanging on the grill like a beard. And, and instead of the fuzzy dice, it'd be the heads. Yeah. Shrunken <laughs> heads. Yes. Kabla, motherfucker. <laughs> I killed him yesterday. I think I still have to kill him. <laughs> His body's still twitching somewhere. <laughs> and they're playing the Klingon version of lowrider. Yes. <laughs> Is that actual Cleonese? I have no idea. It sounds like it. You just have to sound like you're about to hawk up phlegm. Which is pretty much... (laughs) Those people scare me. What? The people who are so into Star Trek that they go on retreats and live like Klingons. Believe it or not. I used to know this guy. I don't know where he is now. Mm-hmm. His name is Barry. Barry, you know, I'm sorry for saying this if you're listening to this from wherever you're at. But this guy actually went and got a degree in Klingon languages. He went to some school out west. From yeah. where? The College of No Life? No, believe it or not, there are some colleges that actually teach Klingon as a language. Look it up, if you don't believe me. Am I right, Eric? You are. You can get a degree in Klingon languages. Now, like Tom said, they have conventions or something where people get together and just speak Klingon. I read articles about teachers who show up to school and there's complete Starfleet uniforms. Well, there was uh, that famous... The juror. And the that juror, woman, that yeah. was, and she showed up in her Starfleet uniform to be selected as a juror. Yeah. And they told her, well, you can't wear that shit. <laughs> and she says, no, I wear this every day. And they did a whole thing about her. And she goes to work. It was part of the very scary movie Trekkies. You're right. That's where yeah. it's like, Yeah, Denise Crosby. Denise Crosby. Yeah. The scariest part was when she started displaying the stuff that the fans sent to her. The woman who was so convinced she was going to be a big movie star that she quits. And even asked for her character to be killed off. That's how sure she was going to be a big movie star. Name me a movie she was in. <laughs> oh, Miracle Mile. Pet Cemetery. There you go. Oh, wasn't she in five seconds of a Stevens and Gottlieb? She's got a loose t-shirt and a baseball bat. <laughs> I, you got me. Outside of Miracle Mile and Pet Cemetery, I can't think of anything she's been in. A loose t-shirt and a baseball bat. I thought that's what Lady Gaga has. Because she actually did beg to come back, and they did bring her back as Tasha right. Yar's daughter for a couple of episodes. <laughs> Here's one of the things that I had a problem. A greater problem with Voyager, but a little bit so much with Next Generation, especially when you compare it to Deep Space Nine, is their lack of recurring characters. Sola could have been an amazing character out of the two episodes that she was ultimately in. The, the whole unification plot that they had with the Rivalates could have been amazing outside of the unification. They touched on it a few times where they kidnapped the other Troy to turn into a Rivalid to see yeah. as they across the border. They did so much that they just never touched on it again. But that unification two-part that you mentioned was notable in that I believe, if I'm wrong, tell me that this was the first time we had a major character from the original show, Spock, showed up on The Next Generation. Let me be more in the first episode on a far point. 
DeForest Kelly. That's right, DeForest what? Kelly, yeah, because he's Kelly, lecturing right. somebody about, you take good care of that ship. Yeah, yeah. Dana. By the way, get off of my lawn. There's one scene, I think it was in Star Trek 2, and, and Kirk is kind of back at Savage mm-hmm. in the turbo lift, and then the door opens, and he's like, who's holding up the goddamn elevator? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. DeForest Kelly was terrific. He said something to Dave, he says something, something, and then now they have like artificial humans too. He really did kind of throw a dig at Data as kind of wake, wake about him and Spock. Because Data rattles off this figure, and this such and such as 0.44, and Bones look at him and said, now how come you know that so precisely? And then they talk about Vulcans, and he says, Sir, I, I was given to understand that Vulcans were an honorable race. And Bones said, Yes, son, they are. Don't you ever forget that. Which I thought was kind of tugged at your heartstrings a little bit. You're right, that was the first time that we saw somebody from the original series. But this was the first time in Unification that a character played an actual major role because Spock was the one that had set all this thing in motion, and we find out that he's been the spearhead behind this whole thing to bring the Vulcan and Romulan races back together right. as one people. It was don't set too well with the Romulans. <laughs> they <laughs> like they had a fantastic subplot to that that worked right into that whole part of the plot too. Mm-hmm. With Riker and the starship that was missing and the whole thing about the Vulcan ships. And you see those Vulcan ships coming in and they were supposed to be loaded with Romulan troops. It was a really cool way to tie the subplot into the main plot. Which they often didn't do yeah. because they would have their A plot and their B plot and sometimes right. I would be sitting there and I would say the A plot is fine. But what the hell does this B plot have to do with anything? Right. Or that, oh, the B plot's so much more fascinating than the A plot. Yeah, there you go, yeah. Sometimes you say, oh, man, dump that. I want to find out what's going on here. To me, in my opinion, is uh, more often than not for me in the next generation. Yeah, because by the time they got to Deep Space Nine, they knew what they were doing. Oh, God, yeah. As far as these new Star Trek series. But if you look at the character interaction, which to me is the biggest thing about Star Trek, despite the starships and the aliens that they come up with, outside of the original series, we all know. It's Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Everybody else has their little interactions and their characterization, but they're all kind of secondary to the big three. Yeah. When you jump to the next generation, Picard's got his relationship with Data, he's got his relationship with Worf, and obviously the whole relationship with Crusher, which didn't really go to anywhere until that one episode where they were kind of joined at the mine. Yeah. And the, the thing with that is, is that executively, I guess it was handed down that they didn't want the show to actively do anything between the Picard character and the Crusher character. So the actors kind of had to take it upon themselves to do something about it, which could kind of make up for the inconsistency of how often you'd see their interaction together. Right. Yeah, they always kind of danced around the thing, oh, well, will they or won't they or are they or should they? Right. Because they would make a big point of saying that every morning she has breakfast with them. And I said, maybe that's from the night before. <laughs> maybe she's snuck into his room in the middle of the night. Who knows? But they never did anything with it. And that was a problem with a lot of the things that they set up with these characters, except the war. Right. The war the best of both worlds. And following that, and following Picard being ripped out of the collective, they show in the, the other episode after that, for the, the second episode of season three, technically, was where he went to see his family. Yeah. He's beating up his brother in the wide yard, and he's talking to his nephew, who wants to be a starship captain. And they didn't do anything with them after that for the next five seasons. Until right. they killed him in generations. Which was inexplicable. First of all, that was completely unnecessary. Oh, there was no reason to do that. And unless you had seen that episode, you had no idea why Picard was getting so emotionally overwrought over them being dead. But if you had seen his interaction with them in that episode, like you and I have, well, we know why he's so upset. 
over there. Oh, and the whole animosity from the Watt brothers, like when you abandoned the wide yard. And then after they beat the shit out of each other in the wide yard, the house is all muddy and they're drinking wine and laughing. Like they kind of worked through their animosity for a little bit. And then the episode where Data creates his own daughter. Oh, yeah, I love that episode. But after and then the whole thing where he's trying to save her life, and Star Trek Depositronic Brain isn't really a sure thing. No. I mean, it's one in a million shot that it worked with Data, let alone his brother. Which is why we don't have millions of Data's. As a matter of fact, going back to that episode that you were talking about, that's why the guy wanted to take Data apart so they could figure out how the Positronic Brain worked so they could make right. more Data's. Right, and then the whole debating is sentience, and then the cool scene with Riker taking Data's arm off and that he's turning him off, he says, so now I just cut Pinocchio's Fantastic episode. But when you get to Lao and how Data's fighting to save her, he can't. So as her brain crashes and he downloads her into his body, they didn't do anything after that with No, nah, no, nah, they never did yeah. it. Why didn't he just try again? Or create a holodeck copy of her. Just things that were set up and just never paid off after oh, a while. And then when they killed Data in Nemesis, they killed the daughter too. They had that really stupid B4 character and the character could barely take Data's memory dump. They were supposed to believe that they got the memory dump from another person in there too? As I said in that episode when we were doing that, when we had that part that was in the movie and they dug up the parts of B4 on that planet I knew where they were going with that when I oh, saw that. They, I said, oh, well they're going to kill Data off. They set themselves up to search for Data <laughs> if they ever went around to ever doing a new movie. But the problem that I had with that movie quickly was if they know they're walking into what's essentially going to be the last movie. Does it Starfleet ever let anybody retire? No. So you boop John Luke out of the spot, you kick Riker to captain, considering that he's been wasting his entire career for 10 years at that point as a commander, you give him that seat, you make Data the commander, and then you just move on. End of story, end of day, everybody gets what they want. Picard could go roaming around the entire galaxy with his one-time flick Bosch and dig into his love for archaeology. Well, see, that was one of my problems also with Star Trek, the original series, that every once in a while you would have this episode where they would come to Riker and say, oh, well, we got this ship that we want you to take over. And Riker would say, no, no, I don't want to do it. Wait a minute, this is the military, or at least... Starfleet is supposed to be a semi-military. Right. Since when you get the option to turn yeah, down the command when they tell you we have a ship? It always seemed obvious to me that it was patterned after the United States Navy. Especially after you had the board come and wipe out half of Starfleet, right. where they needed experienced commanders to take commands of all the ships. You don't have the option of saying, well, no, I think I'll just stay right here. All right, well, Riker, we have only one ship left beside the Enterprise because we only have a fleet of three ships. Yes, apparently. Again, why does Starfleet even maintain other ships when apparently the Enterprise is the only ship that's ever <laughs> within range to, to handle these problems? Mm -hmm. Riker should have got his own ship long time ago. Well, at the end of Generations, the saucer the ships dug into the ground. He's got his hand out the chair. He says, I've always wanted this seat. I'm like, well, it's fucking broke. Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like it can't be bolted to the ground very tightly right now. And to me, it's always ironic that we got two of the best Star Trek Next Generation stories out of the fact that they didn't know Patrick Stewart was going to come back. Yeah. Right. Because in the best of both worlds, Patrick Stewart started making noises about, well, I really don't want to do this, I want to quit. So that whole story with him being captured by the Borg was set up so that if by the time they reached where they had a film and yeah. negotiations hadn't been done, they were going to kill him off and Riker was going to be the captain. Right. right. That's why they introduced Commander Shelby, who was going to take over as first officer. We got an, a brief glimpse as to how it would have been if Riker had been captain of the Enterprise. So we would have got somebody a lot closer 
to Kirk. And I think the series would have went in a more action-adventure kind of vein. Yeah. Well, that's why we got the episode. Remember the episode, Eric, where the aliens took over the Enterprise and it was Die Hard on the Enterprise? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was because that's what Patrick Stewart said. He said, I want to do some action for a change. Right. Let's do Die Hard on the... I wouldn't give it my left nut to hear Jean-Luc Picard say, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> oh, no doubt. I would have loved to hear him say that. Walking around with no shoes. <laughs> no shirt. Just a wife beater. Oh, <laughs> that would have been, oh, been awesome. The other two-parter that we got where Jean-Luc wasn't even captain of the Enterprise was Chains of Command. Right. Where he got captured by the Cardassians and he was tortured for two episodes. And they replaced him with Edward Jellicoe, who I thought was a fantastic shake-up to the entire show. Well, Ronnie Cox was one of the actors that had tried out along with Yafikado, mm -hmm. as I mentioned. He was one of the actors that was up for the role of John Luke. He didn't get it because apparently Roddenberry, once he saw Patrick Stewart, that was it as far as he was concerned. Right. Yeah, I like Jellicoe too. Patrick Stewart's contract was up and he was making noises that he wasn't going to come back. So again, they wrote a story so that, okay, if by the time we get ready to start the next season, we haven't ironed this out, we're just going to have... John Luke died during being tortured, and Jellicoe was going to be the captain. And everybody reveres him because he told Deanna Troy, come on my bridge, you dress like an officer. He said, are you an officer of Starfleet? She said, yeah. He said, dress like one. She got hotter instantly. Yeah! <laughs> Once she start wearing the lingerie, because she used to come dressed like a Victoria's Secrets model. <laughs> oh, she put her hair up, she wore that uniform, it pushed everything off. Yeah! It's like, wow, Patrick Stewart acted his ass off in that one. Yeah. And when that scene where he got his uniform, not really uniform, but his clothes cut off for that, he was really naked on a close set. Yeah, yeah. They said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. That was really a chilling moment at the end where he's talking to somebody and he's talking about the torture that he's undergone. And he's saying that he's so grateful that they came at the moment that he did. And they said, well, why? He said, because then at the end, I was seeing five lights. The whole time he's saying, how many lights do you see? Four. Rod and boom. <laughs> how many lights do you see? Four. <laughs> and then at the end, if you say there are four lights, you can't break Picard. <laughs> nah, nah, and I got a newfound respect for the man. Because, yeah, that's like some of the finest acting in the entire episode. Completely forgotten about. The whole torture thing. Oh, yeah. So it was like it never happened. Well, yeah. this is still the whole meme that Derek and I tracked in episode 10 of the serialized evening drama was still developing. I guess the impression was that people weren't ready to see that sort of type of development over time. Well, actually, and it was a big deal back then, and it's still today. People cite this as the best TV cliffhanger of ever, best of both yep, worlds. Of both that worlds. hadn't been done before. Star Trek was the first one, as far as I know, to leave you on a cliffhanger for the whole summer and you had three months right. and you had to wait to come back and holy shit you can't do this to us but they did there's Lacutus and he said there's just Worf Klingon your species will be assimilated into ours he said they're going Mr. Worf Fire. Yeah. To be continued. And the screen goes black to be continued. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you say holy shit and of course now we have become indoctrinated into these season in the cliffhangers. Right. But back then Man, there were people ready to riot. Cliffhanger mm -hmm. <laughs> into three set the tone for how every season for that next generation, as far as I know, ended. Yeah. Every season jumped from one cliffhanger into the next. Right. And it wasn't until, uh, I think, Unification, where we even got two-part episodes in the middle of a regular season. Obviously, Unification, you had Chains of Command, 
Yeah, you didn't. One where Picard was supposed to play a raider. Yeah, you didn't have that many two-parters. Not like Oakland Raider. You didn't have that many two-parters, not like Voyager, which had them up the wazoo. It seemed to me like almost every other episode was a two-parter. The only ones I really enjoyed out of that was The Year of Hell and the one with the Borg. Well, which one was that? Yeah, y'all, my God, yeah, which one with the Borg? See, the one with 709, she goes back to the Borg. Oh, yeah. And they have to go to Unimatrix 1, get her back. Yep, because Unimatrix 1 was where these drones who had some sort of genetic deficiency managed to create their own little matrix for each other. Yeah, I like that one. Well, the serialized TV thing was, honestly, the biggest reason why, now that we can finally get into it, was why I love Deep Space Nine. Everything from the first episode... Even as they struggled for their own identity for a little bit, but from the first episode had a tremendous progression all the way to the last. These characters changed, their relationships with each other grew and changed as they kind of matured with each other. By then, Roddenberry was out. Died by unification. That episode was dedicated to him. What? Right. Well, he had died at yeah. that point. Yeah. So they yeah, took- because I know for the entire Next Generation season, given his whole thing for diversity, he was fighting to get a gay person onto uh, the Next Generation side. That died the day he died. Well, supposedly wasn't the character, and I've heard this, I've never heard it actually confirmed, but I've heard it on various things, Lieutenant Hawk from First Generation, he was supposed to be gay. Yeah, and it wasn't until the books that took place before that, leading up to when he was assimilated, that they really played with that. Okay. After the post books, it was his lover who was dealing with the whole fact that he was God. Right. But they actually did flirt around briefly with those kind of sexual things. Because remember the episode where Riker, he was on that planet. It was the people without any gender. Yeah, the asexual monkeys. Right. And originally I heard that episode was supposed to be played by a man. But for some reason or another, they changed it. And it was played by Melinda Kaleo from the 18. Right. The love interest, so to speak, in that episode. Right. And of course, in Deep Space Nine, we had Garak, who was, shall we say, sexually ambiguous. Garrick's got to be probably the best character out of that entire show. Okay. Season four, when they introduced Worf into the series, and it was this whole thing with the Klingons and how they were going to invade Cardassia, and the Klingons walk into Garrick's shop because he's a tailor, and he says, so let me guess, you're here to be fitted for better clothing. And then they beat the shit out of him. Cashews <laughs> trying to fix him up. Well, they broke four of your ribs. They broke a collarbone. And Garrick sitting there says, "Well, I did manage to shoot off several sharp comments that I'm sure severely bruised their egos." <laughs> <laughs> As played by Andy Robinson, there were few characters on Deep Space Nine that could keep up with him when they were on camera together. He effortlessly stole every scene he was in. Just a consistently terrific performance from the very first scene he had to the last. One of the reasons why he stands out for me is that when he was in the episode. So they knew what they were doing with him. Right. They didn't actually do a lot that ever contradicted his character. He was probably one of the most consistent characters out of that entire show. Oh, yeah. He had such fascinating relationships with Bashir, first of all. Oh, yeah. With Cisco, Because everybody knew the guy was a spy. <laughs> but it's like, so what? <laughs> That's what always cracked me up. How does a tailor know how to do this? Oh, but just things I do. It turned out that he actually was a very good tailor. Well, he was Garrett. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to the point I was trying to make, because since now they didn't feel constrained by Roddenberry's mandate that there'd be no conflict between the characters, they could have conflict between the characters. Right. And that made for a more dynamic, diverse cast of characters, because you had the Bajorans, they had their own agenda, Starfleet had their own agenda, everybody had their own agenda on Deep Space Nine. Nobody right. was in lockstep and everybody wanted to 
the same thing. Oh, from the Cardassians to the obviously the Dominion, they 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 were all relatively out in the open agenda. Yeah, you would do what you were getting when you walked into this. These police fighters, you know, a massive struggle from start to finish. Right. When they walked in, it was a struggle with trying to fix the station, a struggle to earn the Bajoran's trust, and the Bajoran thing with the Cardassians was something that was introduced in The Next Generation, where yep. they introduced that some role for the cast. Right from the beginning, since we're on a Cardassian space station and using Cardassian technology, it's got to look unlike we've seen in any other previous Star Trek right. show, because they're dealing with a different type of technology that they have to adapt for their own use. The Cardassian architecture with sharp angles and these swooping arcs. Yeah, which I think was a brilliant move on their mind, because originally they were going to use a Federation space station, then somebody said, nah, 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 let's use Cardassian space right. station. And I said, thank God. Visually, the show stands out from previous Star Trek shows. The computer screens that had those odd angles to them. Right. From what I read, was just kind of an improvised thing. Where they, where they were setting up how this series looked, and they were setting the sets, and you had this big black touch screen. And I think somebody said, well, that just kind of looks a little boring. And somebody just pulled out a piece of white tape and just rehanded those odd, weird designs into it that really kind of set the tone for how the rest of the show would go visually. Nothing was ever just a perfect square or a perfect circle. It was just all these weird angles and shadows that really helped set a, a tremendous tone for that show. And you know what else I like? It may sound like a small thing, but I thought, first of all, you had the two-level command center. Yeah. And then you had the elevator that came right up onto the command and you had a transporter that you could transport right there which to me says damn that makes a lot of sense that you could just transport right, right. to the command center right and of course we had and I'm sorry I'm going to mention him and people are going to say oh you just want to throw him because he's black well no it's not that Benjamin Sisko was the most well-rounded Captain, as a character, he was right. a single father trying to raise his son. He Following was the death of his wife, Wolf Three Five Nine. Another thing that they took right out of the next generation. Right, he was a gourmet chef. He was experienced Starfleet officer. He was an engineer. He built his own starship by hand. He loved baseball. He loved baseball. That he, baseball that was on his desk was there from episode one all the way to the very all end. All the way mm -hmm. to the very end. And matter of fact, there was one great episode where they used the baseball as a powerful dramatic point. It's after the Federation has been kicked yep. off of Deep Space Nine. His arch enemy, Gold well, Dukat, walks onto, and there's the baseball. It's still on the desk. Right. And, somebody, and one of the Cardassians go, he forgot this. And Gold Dukat looks at it and says, he didn't forget it. He's telling us he's coming back. He's coming back right. for it. But he's got all of these different qualities. And he's a very well-rounded individual, as well as being the religious leader of an entire planet. You right. don't get much cooler than that. The emissary. Oh, emissary. And people <laughs> drop to their knees. And, and also, his blackness does figure into what is probably the finest episode of Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars. Yeah. You ever seen this one, Tom? Hey. No, I'm afraid not. Here's the setup. This you will appreciate. Cisco is having these hallucinations where he hallucinates that he's seen this man look at him. Right. He, he'll look out a porthole, and he'll see what looks like him, but it's him wearing a tie, 20th century gear, and he's, glasses. he's wearing glasses. He passes out, and when he wakes up, he's a science fiction writer in the 1950s named Benny, and he's working at one of these pulp science fiction magazine offices. Everybody from Deep Space Nine, they all work there in one capacity or another. And Odo is his editor. And he's been trying to sell his editor on the idea of running these series of stories set on Deep Space Nine. However, the guy, his editor is telling him, I can't do this, I can't do this. He said, why? Because you got your captains black. You've got to change it to be a white man. And he won't do it. And at the end of the episode, it leaves you with an ambiguous thing. 
what's the reality? Is what we're watching really Benny's stories right. that he's hallucinating about? Because he's having hallucinations of being Cisco. Or is Cisco, and it's a very ambiguous episode, and it's extremely well done, and it's about the nature of racism back in the 50s. For writers, especially black writers such as myself, who face a good deal of difficulty at times, <laughs> it has a certain resonance. When I see these type of things that are going on and realize that they still go on today, it brought me back to when my first novel, mm-hmm. Dylan and the Voice of Odin, came out. And I got an email, and this gentleman said, I've been reading your stuff for the longest time, and I didn't know you were black, because I had a picture of myself on the back cover. And the guy went on, and this is exactly what he said. To this day, I wish I had saved the email. What you need to do is stop trying to write like a white man and write about things that concern your people. And you'll be more of a success at what you're doing. And I don't appreciate you tricking me by trying to write white. I sat there in front of my computer screen, and I didn't know whether to laugh, cry, or put my fist mm-hmm. through the screen. And I had never before encountered things. I, oh, I thought I'd moved past that. Right. I had even had black people who have read my stuff. They don't get pulp kind of things that I write. And they say, well, this is white man shit. Why are you wasting your time writing this? So when people talk about that type of racism doesn't exist anymore, yes, it does. Oh, yeah. So that's why that episode had a great deal of resonance for me. And it was an episode that they even went back to two or three times for the course of Deep Space Nine, where I think they revisited it, and he was in a loony bit. Yeah. He had jacket on, and he was writing stuff on the walls. Benny went nuts because he couldn't get it out of his head of Deep Space Nine, and that's all he wanted to write stories about. He didn't want to write stories about anything else. And we see that he's writing about the events that are happening in the episodes that we've been watching. But it's Paul. You could see the 1950s version of what Deep Space Nine would have looked like. They sketched it out. It was very, very retroactively cool. Yeah. And the other cool thing with that episode was you saw everybody out of makeup. Gold Ducat, you saw Marcus Alamo or whatever. I forget his yeah, name. Yeah, Mark Alain. Yeah, he played the crooked cop. And then you saw Wei Yoon out of makeup. I got a good story that goes along with that. My wife watched Deep Space Nine. She didn't watch it until Worf came on there. Because my wife is a big Worf fan. She loves mm-hmm. Worf. So... I said, oh, well, you got to watch this episode because I've seen it before her. It's Worf, but he doesn't have the makeup on. Right. She said, I don't like him. I said, but it's the same guy. Mm -hmm. She said, well, he's not sexy without the makeup and that voice. (laughs) So when he's Worf, she thinks he's hot. But in Michael Dorn, she says, ugh. She says, I don't like, she said he needs to put that back on. I hope that hasn't led to her maybe one of these days throwing a prosthetic forehead at you. Uh, Come and get me. (laughs) Eric? Yep. We'll discuss that after the episode is over. (laughs) (laughs) And he said as he hides his book on clean. On uh, maiden rituals. No, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, what was that? No, nothing. <laughs> no, 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 nothing. Uh, as you and I have said in private conversations, Deep Space Nine is your favorite one out of all of them. Hands down. They introduced, and obviously the biggest plot for the entire series, starting from the near end of season two, was the Dominion. And they carried that from season two all the way through season seven. Whether or not it were a few episodes here and there, it was a slow burn. But when they introduced the Dominion as a true force to be reckoned with, at the end of season two, because one of the biggest problems they had with the Space Nine was the fact that being on a space station, everybody had to go to them. Yes. So their answer to that was the Defiant. Now they could actually go away from the station and seek adventures outside of the station. And the Defiant, like a lot of the best things out of Deep Space Nine, went right back to the next generation because the Defiant was a ship designed to fight the Borg. Right. This wasn't a ship designed for exploration. Or not. It was designed to do nothing but kick ass. Oh, and kick ass it did. And it was designed by Cisco. Then I'll make no mistake, this is a ship that could probably fit main shuttle bay of the 
Enterprise D. And this thing would probably have kicked the shit out of the Enterprise D six ways to Sunday. Oh, yeah. It was the only Federation ship, I think, that had a cloak. Yeah, because the mandate to the cloak was that they could only use it in the Gamma Quadrant. Yeah. When they were there to research the Dominion. And it was a cloak I loaned from the Romulan government. Like, anybody was really going to tell. Cisco <laughs> turns around and says, listen, are we using the Alpha Quadrant? Anybody going to say anything? Nah, man, go ahead. It's your ship. Do what you want to do. Well, I, I think it was the first episode to be the fight. There was a Romulan on ship, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Because of the cloak. And it wasn't the same cloak that was introduced in Next Generation either, the one that phased them through an asteroid. Oh, no, no. That was the phase cloak. They probably could have easily have just stolen that idea. But yep. they stayed true to the whole treaty between the Romulans and the Federation, which I liked a lot. I could see the Romulans giving them a cloak, but I couldn't see them giving them a phase cloak. That's just a little right. bit too much power to share with the Federation. But let me ask you something. Who was your favorite Dax, Jadzia or Ezri? It's tough for me to not say Jadzia, just because she had six years versus the one year of Ezri. Here's something I often compare it to. When people come to me with, well, the Brian Cox Hannibal Lecter was far better to the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter. And while the Brian Cox one was good, sometimes I think just because of the sheer amount of screen time of the Anthony Hopkins versus the Brian Cox, that Anthony Hopkins had more moments to be brilliant. More gravitas. Right. But to me, in a lot of ways, just what helps make Jadzia better than Ezra. You know what my problem with the Ezra character was? They introduced her right in the middle of all this interesting stuff was going on with the Dominion <clears throat> War. And they effectively stopped everything for five or six episodes to establish this new character. Right. Because they had her go back to the Trill homeworld to talk to her parents. Remember? Right. Well, they really could have focused a lot more on uh, just her difference with Worf. Because Worf was married to Jadzia. I don't even see why they had to even reintroduce the character. Jadzia Dax is dead. Let's just move on. She really didn't do all that much as a science officer. No. Well, she didn't really do a whole lot anyway. Yeah. Just because they introduced her at the height of the Dominion War. So there was so much going on. Where do you fit her in? They stopped. They threw the brakes on and put her in. Yeah, because they wanted to establish, got to give this character, we got to reestablish her relationship with Worf, with Cisco, with her parents. And we don't want to know about that. We want to know what's going on with the Dominion War. That's what's happening. And the funny thing, though, is the six episodes that they devoted to Esri, just to do that, is more time they spent on her than they did when Jordy the Forge lost his mother. Yeah. Because they introduced that Marine... As the father, as, as his father, they introduced the sister, and then they introduced Marsh Sinclair as his mother. That's right. And then by the next episode, he totally forgotten. Madge Sinclair, who, by the way, had not only was she playing Jordy LaForge's mother, but in the Voyage Home, I believe it was, she was the first female captain in Star Trek that we had seen. She was just kind of another reason why, and even though it threw the brakes on it, was why I liked Deep Space Nine better. Right. And they used plot elements better. Like the Maquis, the Maquis Deep Space Nine totally owned. They had uh, Benjamin's friend, the facts to the Maquis. They spent two episodes with that. They reintroduced Thomas Riker. Yeah. And we found out that he had become a member of the Maquis. Yeah. Because he stole the Defiant. And then called the cops like, Wait a minute, you just let somebody steal the most powerful warship in the entire quadrant? <laughs> <Asshole. laughs> okay, now, let me ask you something before we wrap up this and we move along. Because we got to keep this moving because right. time is pressing. Sorry, Tom. What? What? <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, I was asleep. <laughs> He's over here eating the muffin and <laughs> reading Maxim. It's like, ooh, good muffin. That's why I said, oh, sorry, what? <laughs> how did you feel about how they finally wrapped up 
the end of the series with Benjamin Sisko essentially going to be one with the Angels? To be honest, I was never the biggest fan of the whole emissary side of the plot. So when they did that, uh, let me put it this way. Every time I think about Deep Space Nine, my memories of that final episode and when you have Sisko, Martok, and the Admiral. I forget his name. All right. When they're standing on Cardassia and Martok's got the blood one, and they're ready to drink it, and Cisco pours it out. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, but I just don't feel like this is good. Yeah, because before and after that, that, that's when my mind shuts off. Yeah, because before the battle, they had had that big thing when they was all pumped up and saying, well, when we stand on the Dominion home, where we'll drink a case of blood wine. Right. And by the time they finally did it, they were just so sick and tired, they just wanted to go home. And Bartok said there with a glass of blood wine going, oh, come on, guys. Oh, he drank it. He said, well, he, shit. He drank it. He was he, like, well, shit, then, more for me. He said, I work for this. I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> The whole pirate, the emissary thing. Yeah. I was just, yeah, it's just what was part of the show, but I can't get that excited about it. Because, like so many other shows, most notably and recently lost, when the writers don't know what else to do, they go mystical. And that's what they did. They turn it into just another good versus evil. Yeah. Although, the best part about that was probably the montage that they had at the end. Oh, yeah. Remember they were playing The Way You Look Tonight? Yep. Intercut with the Deep Space Nine theme, and they had the montage of the characters from the start to finish. The only time I ever cried at a movie, and this was a long time ago, and I don't know why I'm even admitting this, so I might not even be allowed back on the show, was an American tale. Really? Singing about his family, and I won't say cry, it wasn't like a blubbering mess. So the montage with Deep Space Nine and just the memories of all those seven years almost got me. It brought a lump to your throat. It did. At that point, my favorite show is done. My reason for watching TV at this time is done. Obviously, TV shows have come and kind of replaced that, as they do. Right. But one of the good things about that is that I feel that if they never did another Deep Space Nine show, they did bring them to what I thought was a satisfying conclusion. Yep. Now, I know that there have been at least about a dozen novels written that continue the Deep Space Nine story, but I've never yep. read any of them. I don't need to know any more about these characters. Oh, see, I've read all of them but one. And how are they? Excellent, to be honest with you. They're really, really good. They introduced the new commander because Kira takes over the station. I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> now you make me curious. Well, the cliff notes, Kira took over the station. Eventually, Bajor gets into the Federation, so Kira upgrades to a regular Starfleet uniform. Mm-hmm. And they introduced Alias Vaughn, who's a character who's touching his hundreds. He's got a long history of Starfleet. And they introduce a cool Andorian, and they have a mission in the Gamma Quadrant where they explore the Gamma Quadrant a bit. They bring back the conspiracy aliens from the next generation and kind of tie them into the patrol slugs. Right. They've done a lot. Cisco's back, and they wrapped up the board and the books, so Cisco kind of got his commission back for Starfleet because Starfleet took quite a bit of a beating in that. They're actually really pretty good, but it's the only book series that I'm enjoying. I don't like the Next Generation books at all. I've only read a couple of them. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Star Trek books that I had, and I had like a whole bunch of them, I actually sold or gave away a lot of them. I read them one time, but it's not like the movies. For some reason, I can rewatch the movies over and over again, but I can't read the books over and over again. Like, I read them one time and say, okay, well, that's it. I'm happy. So, to kick it forward to Voyager. Okay. Just so that we could keep out of pace. I've seen a lot of Voyager. I kind of gave up on it after the third season, but kept up with it enough in, in certain parts. Now, the basis of Voyager was they took the ship through it 70 years away from home, and then followed the next generation format of rebooting the show 
after every episode. If your ship is the only thing that exists as far as the center of the story goes, to not carry a lot over just doesn't make that much sense to me. You're not creating a connection with these characters if by the end of the episode, what they went through doesn't matter anymore. It started off promisingly enough. Remember when it goes back to the first episode, Caretaker, when Janeway goes and she visits Tom Paris? When he's in the penal colony. But then afterwards, we meet all of these other characters and we really don't have time to get to know them before they get thrown across the thing and get the array. Yeah, the array. Well, that's the thing that kills me. They introduce a brand new starship of characters. Five minutes in, they kill three quarters of them. Right. And in the next episode, you would have never known anybody died. The first officer of the ship, the one who steers it. The entire medical staff. Yeah, by the old clock on the wall, which is actually on my computer, we're going to have to close this off, folks, because yours truly has real life to get back to. But we are going to have Eric come back, and we're going to finish our discussion with Voyager and with, ugh, Enterprise. Oh. Yeah. God. If you want top-level venom on that one, just wait. No, but you know what we're going to do? Me and you will talk about it. I'll put it in a movie for Tom to watch. <laughs> he can watch that. <laughs> Well, me and you do the episode. Put yeah. a movie, give him a bowl of spaghettios, pat him on the head, and leave him off. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And me and you will finish doing that episode. But we want to let people know that, yes, we're going to finish the discussion. As I was saying to Tom last night, when uh, yesterday, me and Patricia were coming back from Long Island. Right. And I did not even know my right headlight wasn't working. And a cop uh-huh. pulled me over. And he said, why did you get your headlight fixed? I said, what headlight? He said, your headlight is out. And I got out. I looked at the officer. Honestly, I did not know. He was gone. And, but he was good enough to let me go. Yeah. Which here in New York is almost an impossibility. Cops will write you up for any little thing. And Patricia was freaking out. She said, you got to get it fixed. You got to get it fixed. So that's why we have to cut this short, folks. Okay. Well, we want to thank Eric Frome, by all means, for being here today. Be our guest. Give me something to talk about. Eric, this is the time when we give our co-hosts space to pimp anything they want to pimp. So, by all means, endorse away. Well, I guess if you're into Marvel and DC fan fiction, the only real thing I got to plug are both of my sites at dca.b-hyphen.com and ma.b-hyphen.com. And if you forget that, then just go to b-hyphen.com and get everything you need to know about b-hyphen. There you go. I get Kellen a plug, which is far more than he's ever done for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> you hump ya. <laughs> so once again, Eric would like to say, suck it. <laughs> okay. With a capital suck it. Okay, Thomas, do your thing. Okay, whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you say you want to keep Eric and get rid of me, there's a number of ways you can get a hold of us. You can send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can go and join the wonderful Better in the Dark message board, which, of course, is maintained by Eric at betterinthedark.proboards.com. You can go to Facebook and join the Better in the Dark Facebook fan group, which is just Better in the Dark over there. You can also follow Derek, myself, even Eric. Um, Yes, exactly. By being our friends. Both Derek and I have a presence on LiveJournal where you can follow our adventures, both Better in the Dark related and non. Derek's is Derek Ferguson's Notebook. And Tom's is Space Monkey Mafia. We also invite you to come and visit the blog that Derek is participating in called All Pulp. All Pulp, where all things pulp related, you will find it there. And as usual, both me and Tom still part of Pulpwork Press. And you can find us at pulpworkpress.com. Okay. So that is it. And we want to once again thank Eric. If you do that again, I'm going to start cracking up. (laughs) 
And it's it's a Klingon lowrider. <laughs> yes! Tick clock. Gonna go pick up Torres. Gonna go. Oh, God. And until next time, go see that movie. Or in this case, go see that television show. show. Okay. All right. Good night. Good, good night. God bless. To function aboard a starship or in any human activity, you must learn to form relationships. <sighs> so hard. And of more immediate importance is your ability to work within groups. I'm not good in groups. It's difficult to work in a group when you're omnipotent. Fuck, you're the most cold-blooded man I've ever known. Why, right, thank you, Doctor. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Michael Sims of EarthQ.net, the show, Scott and Chris at Two True Freaks, John S. Drew at The Chronic Rift, Eric Froman, of course, the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark apologizes for Tom's lack of participation for this episode, but the muffin was good, and they had pictures of Kristen Bell in the issue of Maxim, so... Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.bitdsite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that the Oakland Raiders would play even better than they're doing this year if Jean-Luc Picard was their quarterback. Or their owner. Hi, Kalen! a tactical delay. Hey everyone, it's John from the Chronic Rift Podcast, filling you in on what you can expect for the month of November on our show. In addition to the usual gathering of the Rift crew for our in-review episode, we're also featuring an all-new roundtable discussion and two spotlight episodes. The developers of the 100 Rogues iPad game, And Arlen Schumer, author of Visions from the Twilight Zone, are our featured guests in the spotlight. Plus, our roundtable discussion is on the $6 million man and the bionic woman. Yes, I finally get my bionic episode. New episodes are released every Tuesday on iTunes or at chronicrift.com. The Chronic Rift, where we find the culture in pop culture.